We are on week two of a six-week series on sex and sexuality. And this last week, a couple of our middle schoolers and high schoolers came to me, and the middle schooler said, ew. The high schooler said, I can't believe my pastor is talking about, you know. And the middle schooler just said, ew. I get it. I was there once. Uh, I thought the same thing. I remember thinking, sex, never, not in my life, never going to be interested, don't even want to hear about it, no way, no thank you. And then in high school, in high school, I wanted a girlfriend. I wanted a girlfriend mostly because I wanted to be loved and accepted, and I want somebody to say, Max, you're kind of neat. I thought that would be cool, but sex and sexuality just didn't enter my mind for whatever reason in high school. But somewhere along the way, that changed. And all of a sudden, there was a point in my life where it interested me. It captivated me. And so I understand the continuum in the room today. We have everything from ew to eh to ooh (laughs) to I am so done with all of that. Okay, and we've got the whole continuum. I get it. I get it. Okay. How many of you, just out of curiosity today, are married? You're here and you are actually, okay, married? Uh, You can put your hands down. That's awesome. How many of you think you would like to be someday, maybe? Okay, all right, right. that's good. This message today is for you and for all the people who want to stay single the rest of their life. This message is actually for both groups of people. Sex in the United States of America has been taken out of its proper context, and it has been robbed of its proper meaning. And yes, a lot of people are doing it. Uh, And since I don't want to give statistics about teens, I'm just going to lay out some uh, information that we now know about sexual activity among heterosexuals, adults, all right? So if I could get some slides up on the screen, I've got them on the computer, so we'll see if they get up there. First and foremost, I want to talk about adults, okay? So I'm talking about adults. Adults in America are anybody over the age of what? 18. So I'm talking about 18 to 29-year-olds, all right? Among, Among unmarried adults, unmarried adults who are 18 to 29, 88% of them have been or are sexually active. You're like, what? I thought everybody was. Yes, you thought correctly, all right? Now, that number actually goes down just a hair uh, among unmarried adults who are 18 to 29 years of age who identify themselves as evangelical Christians. That number is only 80%. Only 80% of them are, have been or are sexually active. Some of you are like, what? I know, okay? So those are the first two things. I, there's a glitch or something, but I'm going to keep rolling, okay? So Now, I want to talk about a couple of statistics about when in relationships it becomes sexual, all right? So again, I'm talking about adults ages 18 to 29, okay? So for adults who chose not to go to college, all right, they graduated from high school, they're 18, um, they may have installed your fridge from Lowe's, Uh, maybe they served you dinner at Fazoli's last Tuesday night, Um, 63% of them, when they get into a relationship, it becomes sexual by the end of week four. 
by the end of the fifth month, by the time you hit your, quote, six-month anniversary with your boyfriend or girlfriend, about 80% of them are sexually active. And just, just as a freebie there, um, 25... Oh, sorry, we're talking about sex, and then everybody go, okay, so... Um, 25% of this age group, it becomes sexually active by day two. So a quarter of them is sexually active by day two. Now, college students, college students are a little bit more reserved about these things, right? So only half of them are sexually active by week four, and only 75% of them are sexually active in the relationship by the five-month mark. Right? Now, here's the thing about statistics. We only use them when they support what we have to say in America. Right? And secondly, nobody ever does anything or changes behavior because of the statistics. Case in point, texting and driving. Right? Wouldn't all of you in this room say, you shouldn't text and drive? Wouldn't you say that? That's just stupid. That's wrong. And yet, if I had installed a camera in your car... You're laughing. Over the last six months, I bet it would have recorded. And you would have been, come on, I was at a stoplight. Were you behind the wheel? You were driving. Yeah, but it was a stoplight. The car wasn't going anywhere. Or that time when you were glancing, I was just looking to see who it was. I wasn't even going to pick up the phone. See, you and I, when it comes to things like statistics, we always think of ourselves as like the exception because we think of ourselves as exceptional, all right? The statistics somehow apply to everyone else but us. So I get that about statistics. My point in sharing them with you today is that I just wanted you to know what I've long suspected as a pastor, which is that the majority of adults in the United States are sexually active, whether they're married or not, all right? On college campuses, there's actually a phenomenon uh, that's relatively new. It's called hooking up, all right? The way hooking up works is um, you basically engage in sexual activity with somebody you don't know very well, or maybe even a perfect stranger. But what all the studies show about this behavior is that it's almost always done while drunk. And I look at that and I go, wait a minute. If it's just physical, if sex is just something physical, why are y'all getting plastered? Why are you getting drunk? Why not just enjoy it? fully sober so that you get all the you know, benefits and everything else. But it, I know why they're getting drunk. As a pastor, I know why, right? Again, if sex is just something that's physical, let me ask a question. Why is it so hard then for people who've been sexually abused to, quote, get over it? And I don't mean that to be insensitive. I just, I want to draw something out for a moment. You know, if somebody's in you, if some people would say, well, you know, it's the authority figures and authority figures abuse their authority. Well, let me tell you, authority figures are always disappointing, always letting people down, always making mistakes. It's got to be more than that. So why is it that when somebody's sexually abused, they, it's so hard to, quote, shake it if it's just something physical? Again, as a pastor, I know why, All right? Uh, young adults, though, most young adults don't do the whole hooking up thing. Actually, if you look at Um, the behavior, it's less than 5% of activity that's going on. So it's a really small slither of what's going on in, quote, the sexual marketplace in America. For most young adults, they practice what, uh, what sociologists now call serial monogamy. In other words, I'm Doug, I'm in a relationship with Julie, 
you know, she's my girlfriend, I'm her boyfriend, you know, and it's exclusive. Like if Julie started seeing Chris and, and Chris and Julie were in bed with each other, I would be very angry about it and vice versa. You know, if I was cheating on Julie, Julie would be rightfully, you know, and so it's exclusive, just the two of them. And, and again, I, I look at that and I look at those young people and I go, why are you being, if it's just something that's physical and it's no big deal, Right? Why are you being so exclusive about it? What's the big hairy deal? How come it just has to be you and her and no one else? Again, as a pastor, I know why. Sex is actually rooted in relationship. By design, God made sex to work that way. And God made sex to work in a relationship that's a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife, and only for a husband and a wife. Sex in any other context is out of its proper context. It's why the Bible calls it sin time and time again. And some of you might go, oh, Max, it's so narrow. I know. But in a little bit, I'm going to explain why narrow is actually better. Right? Because again, in this series, we, I said, I don't want to just talk about no, don't. I want to talk about why. I want to talk about purpose. Right? So how do you know? How do you know then sex is only meant for married people? Well, first of all, in the very beginning of the Bible, there's marriage. Right in the first chapter, second chapter of the Bible, you've got marriage. Genesis, Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. At last, the man exclaimed, This one is bone from my bone, flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but felt no shame. They're linked physically and spiritually. They're one. And that's by design. Now God actually has several purposes for sex within marriage. One is pretty obvious, right? It's usually framed around the talk. You know, where babies come from, the talk, all right? Procreation, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, govern over it, reign over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Making babies is one of the reasons God created sex, and God created sex within marriage. Another reason is just pure pleasure. Read the Song of Solomon. Look at how a husband and a wife interact with each other, the excitement, the joy. It's pleasurable. It's designed by God to be that way in that context, all right? C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, God's a hedonist at heart. He's out to make people happy. That's from the egghead from the 1960s, C.S. Lewis, all right? The third and I think most important reason, purpose for sex within marriage is spousal unity, and, and Ephesians 5 talks about that a little bit. All right, if I can find it in my Bible. All right, Ephesians 5, verse 31. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. Two people are united physically and spiritually. Scientists now understand why this is the case. Right? Apparently, in sexual intercourse, the body releases oxytocin. 
Basically, it's a chemical bonding agent. It causes you to become, quote, addicted to the other person, to, to kind of paraphrase it, what's, what's going on, all right? Uh, this chemical bonding agent, you can call it spiritual glue, you can call it whatever you'd like. It's why, ladies, when you have uh, broken up with your boyfriend, the one that you were sexually active with, and you say to yourself, and all your girlfriends agree, he was a jerk, you shouldn't have been with him in the first place, da da da, but you find yourself saying, yeah, but I just can't get him out of my head. I just can't get him out of my heart. Well, you were bonded. There's a reason it's so hard to get rid of, quote, the jerk that everybody would have voted off the island because you became one. That's why it's hard um, and difficult to do that. As a husband, I know this to be the case. After 22 years of marriage, I can tell you when Jenny and I are actively one on a regular, consistent basis, I feel more connected to her. And when that is not the case, I feel less connected. And God, I think, up in heaven is doing the whole, duh, I made it that way, to work that way, on purpose. All right? So you have marriage at the very beginning of the Bible. And the funny thing is, at the very end of the Bible, you have marriage. Of all the themes... Marriage comes up first and last. And I don't think that's by coincidence, all right? Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 and following. I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of a mighty ocean or waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to him for the time has come for what? The wedding feast. Of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, for the linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, Write this Blessed are those who are invited to what? The wedding feast of the Lamb. And he added, These words are true that come from God. The picture used to describe what happens at the end of all things when God makes all things new is a wedding celebration. I don't know how many weddings you've been at. As a pastor, I get to go to tons of them. I can tell you on a scale of parties, weddings are at the top. They're the happiest occasions. They're the most fun occasions. There's excitement. There's anticipation. Him, her, I mean... The whole kit, the whole shooting match is just a joy to be able to attend them. I mean, I would go to weddings just for fun because they're that enjoyable. And when I go with my wife because we're married, like we always walk away feeling encouraged. Like, yeah, well, you'd do it again, wouldn't you? Yeah, I'd do it again. I'd marry you. I'd marry you too. And it's like, ding, instant shot of encouragement, all right? Okay, so uh, let's keep going, all right? So marriage is at the beginning of the Bible, It's at the very end of the Bible, and wouldn't you know, it's all throughout the Bible. In the book of Hosea, God tells a prophet to marry a prostitute, and you're like, whoa, that is like just wrong on so many levels. I know, but it's what God did, okay? All right, so God tells this prophet that represents him, go marry a prostitute, because I want to give the people, Israel, a picture of what I feel like. See, I... Married, I got into an 
relationship that was exclusive with you, Israel, but instead of being exclusive to me, just like the prostitute wasn't exclusive to Hosea, you've gone out and worshiped all these other things and put them first instead of me. And so I feel like a groom whose wife goes out and sleeps with all these other guys. That's how I feel about you and about the fact that you don't put me first, about about the fact that I'm not the one and only in your life. And so God told the prophet to do that because he wanted to paint a picture. But when the relationship is made right again, this is what he says in Isaiah chapter uh, 62. He says this, Never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your new name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God, for the Lord delights in you. And he will claim you as his bride. Your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. And then God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. Again, marriage metaphor to talk about relationship. Jesus himself used the same thing in his teaching. He said frequently that he's like a groom. Uh, He said this. It comes up time and time again in the Gospels. And he said that the coming of his kingdom is like guests waiting for a wedding to get going. There's this anticipation. There's this sense of excitement that something wonderful is about to happen. All right? Paul, whom everybody kind of berates, at least all the liberals tend to berate Paul. I don't like Paul. Okay? But Paul even saw marriage as a demonstration of God's marriage to his uh, people, in a sense, right? And he talks about that in Ephesians as well. Ephesians chapter 5, just one verse away from where we were, Paul says this, this is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. He's like, I don't get it completely, don't understand it, it's a mystery, but there's something about marriage that gives me a picture of the kind of exclusiveness, commitment, Etc., that God has with his people. All right? So, in all of these contexts, in all of these contexts scripturally, God wants to be the first and only. God wants to not have any others in the mix. It's exclusive. And if that wasn't enough, we're told explicitly in 1 Corinthians something very powerful about our bodies. Paul says this, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. Some of us would be like, yeah, that's the truth. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and stomach for food. Yeah, that's true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us from the dead by his power, just as he raised the Lord from the dead. Don't you realize your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. Now pause for a moment. Here's a guy living in the first century in the midst of Greco-Roman culture, common practice, all right? I'm a Roman citizen in the town of Athens, right? Uh, Hey, honey, I'll be back going to the temple, all right? And when I go to the temple, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have sex with one of the temple prostitutes. Common practice, right? Sexuality in the first century was totally out of whack in a lot of ways, right? But, uh, but uh, Paul is making this powerful observation under the inspiration of the Spirit. And he's saying, 
wait a minute, wait a minute. It's not just something that's physical because when you join with that prostitute, everything that's in you, every part of you is joining with that. And so you're actually joining, in a sense, the body of Christ with a prostitute. Don't do that. Why would you do that? And so Paul understands that there's something bigger going on than just a physical connection. There's something spiritual. There's something much more profound going on. All right? Um, and, and so he, he tells, uh, he finishes out, uh, don't you real, uh, for the scriptures say the two are united into one, but the person who's joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. And he says, run and do all these other things. Don't you realize your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and who is given to you by God? All right? After 22 years of marriage, this stuff in the Bible makes more sense to me than it used to because marriage isn't about me. It's not about me, uh, my happiness. It's not about what I want, what I need. Marriage is about us. Marriage, in a Christian sense, is about me serving Jenny, me looking to her needs. And I'm commanded in the scriptures to love my wife, wife the way Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? By dying for the church. I don't like to hear that as a husband personally, but it's in there. It's in there, all right? Marriage is other-oriented, but that flies in the face of what we're trained to think about sexuality in American culture, right? We're told that I should be making my happiness my chief goal, and so if I'm in a relationship with so-and-so and I feel like I want or I need, I should pursue that because, right, I'm always dead on about what's going to make me happy, and I'm always right about my pursuit of my happiness because it always ends up well. The grown-ups are laughing for a reason, those of you that are younger, all right? It's no wonder that sex doesn't really deliver on what it promises culturally because in those situations, does anything really turn out great when my happiness and pursuing what I want and what I need is the number one goal of my life? No, never does. So we've got a problem culturally, right? One of the problems we have culturally is that people, even though they say they want to get married, are putting marriage off longer and longer. Today, in America, the, the, the average age of a first-time marriage for a woman is now 26, and the average age for a first-time marriage for a man is 28. So when you get a lot of people who are waiting so long... Sex enters into the relationship, and you get more dating partners, and you get more sexual partners. And so what do couples do when they're dating these days? They do what married people do. They do the, I love you, you're my only one, I love you too, babe, it's the best thing, even though you're like my third one or my seventh one, I think you might actually be the one, so I just love you, I love you too, I love you more, and we do, they do the lovey-dovey thing, and then they do the naked stuff. And then they do the, I'll stay at your place tonight, okay. Well, no, 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 I'll stay at your place tonight. And then they're packing a toothbrush. And then before you know it, what, there's a drawer. You can, I tell you what, the second drawer. You can have the whole second drawer. And then after that, it's just like, well, why don't we just move in together? Why do we have two sets of expenses, et cetera, et cetera? And so someday you get married. And when things get really tough, do you know what you do? You do what you've been doing in all the other settings. You Walk away because it's not meeting your needs anymore because that was the one thing that was driving you in the whole relationship. 
all right? I want to suggest to you that the best way to prepare for marriage is, is to not do the things that married people do. You're like, what? I know, it's weird. But if you're a teenager and if you're younger, if marriage is a goal of yours, a desire of yours, then engaging in sexual activity now, doing the things that married people do now when you're not married is not the way to have a great marriage. Well, what do I do then? Well, I'm going to talk about that next week, all right? So hang tight. We'll get into that next week. If you're married right now, I want to say some things to you, all right? For those of you that are husbands, touch your wife's heart and mind before you touch her body. Read Song of Songs. The guy in that clearly is exaggerating about his woman. (laughs) There is no woman that flawless, not even photoshopped. She doesn't exist. But in his mind, it's reality. So if you can say it and mean it, exaggerate it. Put thought in what you say to her, right? So guys, touch your wife's heart and mind before you touch her body. Ladies, this is going to sound almost old-fashioned, but be available for your husbands. There's this section in 1 Corinthians, which is the funniest thing in the world. It's right after the passage that I just read you. And it's one of the strangest things, I think, in the Bible. This is what it says. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. Wait. And the husband gives authority over his body to his wife. Don't deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. I got to tell you that as a pastor, in all the years I've been a pastor, in all the reasons that couples have given me why they aren't having sex anymore or why they don't, Prayer and fasting have never come up. (laughs) I've never had a couple say, you know, three months ago, we just, we talked about it. And I was like, you know, I'm going to pray. And he said, you know, I'm going to pray too. And it's just, it's been three months and I kind of miss it. But, you know, we're praying. I've never had that happen. I've had all kinds of other reasons come up, but I've never had that one. All right. There's... There's a, there's a pastor's wife, and he was ancient of days when I knew him like a decade ago, okay? And so this is old people advice. So maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Maybe they just need to get with the 21st century. But she would take young women under her arms and, and mentor them. And the, this always came up. You reach this stage of life where you've got young kids and family and responsibility, and you're tired, and your husband's tired, and everybody's tired, and they're sticking and the kids are doing the, and then touching you and touching the walls, okay? Just the dreariness of life. And she would have more than one young woman say to him, you know, I just, I'm, at the end of the day, you know, he wants to do the married thing, and I'm just tired, and, da, da, da. and, she, and you know what she would say to them? Honey? Once or twice a week, fix everybody peanut butter and jelly. I can't do that. Yes, you can. Fix them peanut butter and jelly, put your, put your kids to bed, and make love to your husband. I guarantee you that in two weeks, he will look forward to peanut butter and jelly at night. <laughs> he, will call from, he will call from work. Is it PB and J night tonight? 
her point is this. And see, here's the... Here's, why is this important? If one of the reasons for sex within the context of a marriage is spousal unity, when you take away sex, what happens to spousal unity? Duh. Okay? So I've ran into so many couples as a pastor where they're sitting in, in the couch, and it's the pre-divorce conversation, and it's he and she, and there's this giant wall, and usually you can go back, and there's always issues, there's family issues, there's personal issues, there's all of that. We're complicated beings, us human beings, okay? But the drift, the, the good indicator that the drift was underway was that the sexual intimacy went away, and that was the ding, boom, we're drifting, Right? I, so I just want to remind you, married people, of that powerful truth about spousal unity. All right? So I've talked, about, I've talked to young people and teenagers. I've talked to married people. I want to talk to you that are adults and maybe you're in a relationship. Right? So if you're an adult and you're like, yeah, I think I really love her. I think I really love him. I'm in a relationship. Don't move in. Don't move in. Let me just ask a question. Is it exclusive? Like if he started seeing someone else, would you be really hacked off? If she started seeing someone else, would you really be hacked off? If it's exclusive, why not just jump in? I mean, get married. I'll, I'll marry you for free. I don't charge for weddings. I'm one of those pastors who never charges anything. But if like money's an object, I'll pay the 15 or $30 court fee and you can be married. Here's why. If, and if, if you're thinking, well, you know, I just can't marry her, I can't marry him, then why are you living with him, right? If you don't want to marry him, why go through that whole process, all right? So here's why it's important, I think, for us as a church to affirm what the Bible teaches about sex being rooted in a marriage relationship. Reason number one why this is important. Sex in its proper context is better stronger and more powerful than outside of its proper context. And I want to give you an image to kind of cement that. I'm a kayaker. I go down rivers. I paddle on lakes. When the, when the river channel is narrow, the current is usually swift and powerful. The narrower the channel... So the Colorado River that meanders all the way down through like three or four states. You get into the Grand Canyon and it's narrow, 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 narrow. But if you're in the river, I got to tell you, you're having the ride of your life. It's strong, it's powerful, and it is swooshing everything in its path. You go down just a few you know, 50, 60, 100 miles south of there in parts of California and the Colorado River as wide as the day is long. It's, it's sometimes shallow. The water is sometimes muddy and it doesn't move a bit. Mar- sex within marriage is like that narrow channel and the river is like what sex becomes in the context. Strong, powerful, swift. But sex outside of its context is like the river when it's wide and muddy and isn't moving very much, right? 
one of the reasons it's important that we talk about it is that there's good reasons to keep sex rooted in marriage because it's better. And some of you are like, well, I know my parents, da, da, da. that's not an excuse. <laughs> it's better, right? Reason number two, I'm 44 years old and I don't look back on my life and have regrets. And I need to tell you why. When Jenny and I married, that's it. Like, I've never been, quote, with anyone else other than Jenny. I, I was a virgin when we got married, and she's the only one I've ever been with. And at 44, I've never looked back on my 20s and thought, man, I was robbed. I've never looked back on my younger years and thought, you know, I wish I had had, you know, maybe Julie Christie and Brittany. Never had those thoughts. If anything, I've been grateful. I've thought, wow, I'm so lucky. I'm so blessed. I know tons of people that it's the opposite. And they've had a diversified experience. But now at age 30 or 35 or 40, they look back and they've got tons of regret. Man, I wish in, in the comprehensive sex study uh, that I read, the Regenerist study on the sexual act- heterosexual activity of 18 to 23-year-olds. Oh, don't read that. It's just depressing, da, 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 okay? But you learn a lot. I learned a lot, right? Carlita. Carlita is a student at the University of Pennsylvania, and uh, Carlita has had multiple partners. And if I can channel her for a second, the beautiful thing about this study is that not only did they do the, like, 20,000 different Um, sex questionnaires and gather all the data, the empirical data, but they also had the money to then go in and poll individual specific students and go, so, all right, I see here on the survey, it says that you have a boyfriend. Talk to me about that relationship. How did you meet? You know, what's it like? You know, scrupulous notes. So this is what Carlita said. Uh, This is on page 148. She said, yeah, like, you know, on the one hand, you don't know if you don't do it. And so, Uh, The question asked was, if you could go back and change anything, would you? She's like, well, on the one hand, you know, you don't know if one guy's going to be like really good or one guy's going to be really bad. So on the one hand, you just don't know. So unless you do it. So, but on the other hand, I just, there've been so many different guys and it's just been so disappointing. So, you know what? I guess if I could go back, I just wouldn't. And that's Carlita's wise conclusion at the ripe old age of 23, right? So sex in its proper context is stronger and more powerful. Secondly, you're not going to regret walking out what the Bible calls sexual holiness. But lastly, um, it's attractive. How many of you would hazard a guess on how long half of all marriages in America last? Five years, 10 years? What are some numbers that come to mind? 15 years. What are some other numbers? Six. Seven. The seven-year itch. Oh, it's time to trade up, okay? And some of you are like, what? I know, okay? Would it surprise you to know that half of all marriages in America last a lifetime? A lifetime. Half of all marriages in America last until they're parted by death. As a pastor, I also get to be with people when they die. And I've been in hospice, and I have watched a wife lovingly stroke her husband's arm and hold his hand. And I've watched husbands 
lovingly stroke their wife's arm and hold their wife's hand. And I've seen right then and there the culmination of decades of physical and spiritual oneness. And it is always something that is beautiful and compelling, even as one of them is dying on a bed. Half of all marriages last a lifetime. This week, we were driving around, and um, Beth, one of the other leadership Jesmond County board members, and I were talking. We had some of the younger class members in the back, and um, we discovered we got married the same year. She's just asking me, she says, well, how long have you been married? I said, well, 22 years. And she goes, no way. That's how long Carl and I have been married. I'm like, no way. When did you get married? Well, we got married. They got married uh, New Year's Eve. I was like, well, we got married on August 4th. And, and I was like, you know, I still love Jenny. I mean, I can't imagine being anywhere else. And she goes, yeah, I feel the same way about Carl. And we were like, yeah, isn't it weird how you, like now at our age, we know all these people and, you know, they're on their second or third or whatever. Da, da, da. And she's like, yeah, I know. And, and, and so we're doing the back and forth. And I look back and out of the corner of my eye, I see one of our 24-year-old class members, young lady works at the library, and she has what I call the look. You know what the look is? I would like to have that. That's the look. The look tells me that I'm not off in what the Bible says about sex and marriage. It really is a better way. And so for those of you that have, all you've ever heard from the church is don't, hopefully today you've heard some reasons why. What it's for, what it does, and why it's worth waiting for, and why it's worth protecting and guarding. And if, if quote, you've fallen off the bandwagon, or you're sitting here like beating yourself up, <sighs> God doesn't roll that way. If you're convicted, tell him, hey, mm, uncle, sorry, okay, uncle, I'll come under the authority of the Bible. Sorry for what I did. Today's a new day. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for what? Those who are in Christ Jesus, okay? The past is the path. Today is a new day. Start on a new path, all right? And we'll be talking about how to do that in the coming weeks.